If you guys have a Bible, we're going to Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14. And we are going to talk about the cost of following Jesus this morning. What will it cost you if you say yes to a life of discipleship to Christ? You know, to achieve anything great in life, it's gonna cost you. And many are willing to pay the price. Think about those who decide to become doctors. The process of becoming a doctor is incredibly costly, not only financially in the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it takes to go into student debt to become a doctor, but additionally in the hours and hours and eight years of education that it takes to become a medical doctor. You know, some studies show that the average medical resident works 80 hours a week. And in some fields, it's not uncommon to clock 100 hours a week of working. For some residencies, they actually tell you, you need to kind of put your whole life on hold. You need to put everything on hold. We had a youth worker who was a great, fun junior high worker, and he was studying to become a doctor, and he tried so hard, I mean so hard, to do his medical residency and to be there at youth group. But it ended up like he was there like once every five weeks and he had all this guilt. We eventually needed to just say, go pursue God's calling on your life to become a doctor because he could not in that season of life serve in junior high and follow his calling. Think about the cost of entering into the military, just the grueling physical conditioning that you have to go under. Think about the fact that you don't get to choose what you eat or where you live. Everything in your life is constructed around the authority above you. And if the, uh, your, your commanding officer tells you to drop down and give you 100 push-ups, you have no say in the matter. If you want a nice steak prepared by your mom, guess what? That's not what you're getting. You're getting whatever the mess hall is serving you. And in the moment, it feels costly. In the moment, it feels costly, but when you're in your practice and you have the privilege as a doctor of helping to bring healing and relieve people from pain, when you're in the military and that training means that you keep you and your team safer, it was all worth it. It was all worth the immense cost that you underwent to become this type of person. And following Jesus is no different. Just like apprenticing to be a doctor, just like apprenticing to be in the military, if you want to apprentice to follow Jesus, it will cost you and it will cost you dearly. I had two friends in town the last few months, Michael and Morgan LeBlanc, and they are tribal missionary church planners in Papua New Guinea. And when I mean that they are planting a church from scratch, I mean they are planting a church from scratch. They have recently located a village that they are going to move into. And the thing about Papua New Guinea is that there are hundreds of village tribes and they all speak their own language. They all have developed their own unique language. And so they are going to move into this tribe and they are gonna spend the first several years being accepted as members of the community and learning the oral language. Then they are gonna spend the next several years converting that oral language into a written language that they will develop. Then they are gonna teach the people that written language to read and to write. Then, and only then, are they gonna to go to work on translating the Bible into that language. 
And after years and years of Bible translation, they will then begin to plant the church. They will then begin to set up biblical leadership and teach people how to one, love one another, all the while teaching them how to go to God's word. It is a beautiful picture of cost and sacrifice, and they are committing to 10 to 15 years of their life lived in this one tribe. And they are here on a little break, and we got the opportunity to sit down with them and hear a little bit about their story. And we have about a four-minute video that I'd love to show you guys. And there was real excitement, but because before they had come back for their furlough to give birth to their second child, they had just paired themselves with a village. And the, the, the way that they found this village is that the leader in the village wrote the missionary base a letter. And the, the letter to the missionary base said something like this, please send people to come tell us about your gods. We've seen how the neighboring tribes have been transformed. They no longer kill their own people and they live at peace. We want the peace that comes with your gods. Isn't that beautiful? They observed the difference that the gospel made in the neighboring tribes and they requested missionaries to come. And Michael and Morgan are well on their way. Why don't you listen to their story as we watch this video? We are Michael and Morgan LeBlanc and we are tribal church planning missionaries in Papua New Guinea. We are working amongst an unreached people group in Papua New Guinea with the hopes of planning a self-sustaining, mature church amongst a people that has never heard the gospel before. The decision to become missionaries didn't happen overnight for us. Um, I know for me personally, this has been a 12-year journey with the Lord. Um, and for us together, it's been years of us just saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, in the small things. and. Maybe it started out as giving up sports and then giving up the careers that we wanted, um, giving up the hopes of a house and a certain lifestyle and just a lot of yeses to the Lord along the way to where when he did finally ask us to move overseas, it wasn't as hard of a yes because we had already said yes in these small acts of obedience. Um, so it was more of a, okay, God, I have nothing to hold back from you. Like we will go overseas and serve you. Yeah. And it wasn't this big stars in the sky type moment for us. We're just normal, ordinary people. And for me, it was just sitting down with my friend Charlie and being discipled in the church. And that's really where I believe that uh, missions begins is in the context of the local church. So we were just at college, sitting down, eating lunch, reading the word and seeing that God is a missional God and that Jesus himself left heaven to dwell amongst men. and seeing the response of the disciples when they encountered the authority of God, they left everything immediately. And so that was just a really compelling and convicting moment for us. And throughout this journey, we've often questioned to ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth leaving family? Is it worth leaving all of these things behind? And at first it felt like a sacrifice. We were making all these small sacrifices, but then as we've stepped into the ministry that God's called us to is just been rewarded with joy and we've just been able to experience God in a whole new way that the answer is overwhelmingly yes. It's been so far worth it. And we really think about the verse, like if you wanna find your life, you need to lose it. And now we've finally lost everything. We left everything behind. And now we feel like we have so much more joy because of it. Yeah, and the Bible talks about the Lord is preparing a place for us in heaven. Like, this is not our life. And I think 
like the hard things, they're still hard. And maybe at one point we would have thought that they're a bigger sacrifice than they are now. Um, but they're still hard things. And I think we are going to struggle with, um, yeah, just the layers of loss that we're going to continue to have to say yes to the Lord maybe every day, maybe, you know, whenever, as often as we struggle with those things. But as Michael said, in comparison to eternity um, and the fact that there is a Christless eternity and the Bible says that many are headed there and knowing that life is so short, it's like, Lord, why wouldn't we give up everything? And it's not even giving it up. It's just, it makes sense to us. Why wouldn't we do this for you? Like our real life is hidden with the Lord in heaven and yeah, life is so short and there's thousands of people who have yet to hear the gospel. And I think for us, it's just a no brainer. Like, yeah. why wouldn't we do this with our life? We have all the resources. We have the word of God in our language. We have education. All these things are just such a, a position to go like, to where we saw the need over in Papua New Guinea. We said, why would we not go? And it's as if in this experience, God has pulled back the veil of his glory and we've been able to experience more and more of that. And so Southlands, um, we know that not everybody is called to go overseas, but we do know that the Bible calls each of us to lay down our lives, to give up everything to serve the Lord. And that doesn't always mean the context of going overseas, but locally in your day-to-day -day life, what is the Lord asking you um, to lay down so you can better serve him and say yes more fully to him? It's amazing, isn't it? I uh, love Morgan's uh, parting words. I feel like they're so appropriate. Southlands, not everyone is called to go overseas, but everyone is called to lay down their life to follow Jesus. And so that is what we are gonna explore together this morning. What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to count the cost and to lay down the things of this world so that we can follow God with everything that we have. And some of you are called to be missionaries. And I also hope that this morning, those of you who are called to go overseas, that passion in your heart would continue to grow and build as God invites you into understanding more of who he is. So here we go. These are Jesus' words in Luke 14, starting in verse 25. And he says this, now the great crowds accompanied him and he being Jesus turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and he's not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray as people who are looking in to see if they want to follow Jesus and those of us who have said yes to following you, I pray that we would hear your words Lord, I pray that we wouldn't miss 
the tone, the sobering tone that warns us against the pull of this world and the things of this world. But I pray, Lord, we also wouldn't miss the kind invitation and warning of of a good father who does not want disaster and shortcoming to befall us, but wants us to finish the race. The kind father who wants us to live our whole life surrendered to you so we can enjoy the fruit of an eternity with God. Please, Holy Spirit, help us manage both tones as we dive into your word. And I pray, God, that many of us would today say yes to the cost of following Jesus, to sit down and deliberate and to consider the glory that we receive in being known by God and the earthly things that we lose along the way. And we would count them as our brother, the apostle Paul, as rubbish compared to the worth of knowing Christ. Do this work by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. The first thing Jesus is doing in this passage is he's warning us to count the cost of discipleship. So, that word so is important. So we do not turn away from following him. He's got a reason. He's warning us so that we don't turn away in time from following him. You know, this is Jesus' pattern. His ministry grows and great crowds come to him and then he'll turn to them and deliver just this really challenging sermon. And the crowd is just like split in half. It's like any sort of church growth book written in the 80s or 90s just has nothing to do with Jesus's cost of discipleship sermon here. All these people are following him, you know, nonchalantly just waiting to see a miracle, waiting for him to make more food for them. And the text says, and he turns to them. This is kind of like when your mom goes, Ryan David McDonald, you know, you get that full name. Jesus kind of turns to them in kind of a full name, eternal type of warning, says, get in line. If you're following me because you just want to increase the comfort of your life or you're looking to be entertained by a miracle, I have nothing to offer you and your life will be like that half-built tower or that army who is destroyed because you didn't sit down and consider it. And so he gives us those two metaphors of the contractor and the commander. The contractor goes to build a tower, but he doesn't figure out who he's gonna have to hire, where he's gonna get the materials, how much time of work off he's gonna take. And he starts building haphazardly and realizes he can't finish. And the point is that he's humiliated. Everyone in the town walks by and there's like, hey, there's Tower Joe with his half-built tower. Couldn't even finish a small farm tower that would go on a vineyard. We're not talking about like Rapunzel and her castle. We're talking about a two-story structure to keep grapes cool and to sleep during harvest. And he couldn't even finish it. The second example is of the commander who sends his army who to go out to fight a battle outnumbered two to one. Two to one, they're gonna be destroyed. And he just flippantly says, I'm gonna go serve, I'm gonna go fight. But he doesn't count the cost and it leads to death and total destruction. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if your conversion, if you're coming to Jesus, if you're choosing to follow God, does not factor in letting go of the things of this world, you will be a half-built tower or an army destroyed by your enemy. The only way to continue, the only way to persevere to the end is to sit down and to count the cost. I want you to think 
briefly and soberly, even in your own life, of people who have walked away from Jesus. People who started strong. I think of a good friend of mine in Northern California, did multiple trips with YWAM, and we lived together, and we read the Bible together, and he is just so profoundly lost in just this new age mysticism that has completely lost the centrality of Christ. He's now a spiritual person and not a Christian. And I just think, man, what if he was better prepared? What if he was better prepared to come against the enticements of this world, the enticement of self-actualization and self-gratification? Would he still be following Jesus? And think for your, in your own life, friends and family whose lives now sit as half-built towers. Their faith has been destroyed. And this, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying these people in your life who didn't finish, they didn't finish because they didn't count the cost. And so when they had to say no to their own desires or they went through suffering, they just said, I'm out because they weren't prepared to encounter what was ahead of them. And what the Bible is saying is, man, if you build your Christianity without budgeting for a cost, it will be destroyed. When you, when you build your Christianity, when you think about your faith, you have to. Jesus is saying you have to consider what you are going to say no to. And it feels harsh, doesn't it? Like these words are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought the gospel was free. I thought salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone. I thought God was this kind, cuddly grandpa who picks us up and dusts us off and gives us a bath and sends us out to live our life. And some of those characters are true, that God is gracious and what he invites us to is all because he bore the cost of our sin on Calvary. But also there's this warning here, this warning to heed that if you're gonna follow me, by definition, you're not gonna follow the world. You have two paths. You can walk in the way of the world, self-gratification, acting on your desires, or you can follow the way of Jesus, which was to deny himself, to glorify God and to bring others into the kingdom. You cannot have it both ways. Man, this is vitally important as we prepare people for marriage in the church. As we prepare people for marriage in the church, we must be helping singles count the cost of marriage. The Disney picture of being swept off your feet and having a life in a tower somewhere where you just like love one another and have sex all the time. Like we need to help people formulate that thought. Marrieds and singles alike. We need to be a church community where we say marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult. It's worth it, but it's difficult. I remember my own premarital counseling with Alan and Ronell, And I remember Alan just trying to prepare me for tough times ahead. And he was saying something along the lines of, you're gonna get to a point where your friendship and your sexual desire and your enjoyment of Stacy is gonna wane. And I remember just like rolling my eyes internally. It's like, I was like, oh yeah, totally. I need to be ready for that. And internally I'm like, dude, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> like I'm always gonna want Stacy, and I'm always gonna wanna hang out with her. And seven years into marriage, there have been difficulties and I've been prepared for those difficulties. And I've realized when I've encountered those difficulties that the problem isn't that we weren't compatible. The problem isn't that we fell out of love. The problem is we need to get to work in building a strong foundation yet again for our marriage. 
And when you're not prepared for that, you're thrown off and you're just confused. You're like, what's happening? I thought we were soulmates. And obviously we're not soulmates now, but that is not the case. And so just like in marriage, if you are not prepared for the cost of marriage, it will end up in ruins. So in discipleship to Jesus, if you are not prepared for the cost, your faith will end up in ruins. So what is that cost? If you had to boil it down, because it can't just be moving overseas because not everyone's called to move overseas. It can't just be selling everything you have and living under an overpass. It can't, you know, you know what I mean? Like what is the actual cost of discipleship? When you get down to it, what is it for every follower of Jesus, whether you minister here or overseas? The cost of discipleship is ultimately saying no to yourself. It's ultimately putting to death your own desire for your own life and your own gratification and the world you wanna create for yourself and saying yes to what God wants to create in you. I love how one commentator says it so simply in the context of this passage. People should count the cost involved in saying no to self before starting on a course which they may not be able to finish in the end. This means your dreams, your desires, your sexual impulses, your temper, your ego, your love for money, your desire to self-promote or accumulate the praise and popularity of the world, choosing where you live, choosing what you do, choosing who's in your family, choosing not who's in your family, you surrender it all to Jesus. You look at the life you've built for yourself and you're like, I'm still not satisfied. This isn't totally working. This isn't it, and you, and you look at your little, like, I think of, you know, the marshmallow towers, you know, kids make with like marshmallows and spaghetti. You know, they're cute, but they're good for nothing, right? And you're like, maybe you've built like a cute little life. You know, you have a house and you have a nice family, but it's actually an eternity, it's good for nothing. And so you turn to God and you're like, God, build me something that will last. Give me your desires. Help me live for your cause. Help me live not just for this life, for, for the next one. That is fundamentally the cost of discipleship is you don't get to choose what your life looks like anymore. It's not up to you. At any moment, God could call you to give up what you have right now. That's exactly what God called the youths to do. Daniel and Marsha were called by God to move from your Belinda to go to Thailand to plant a church. And they are a beautiful external example of the fruit of saying no to themselves. But long before they moved their family overseas, they had put to death their own desires in their hearts. Long before they said yes to this big call to do something externally big for God, internally they had decided to say, Lord, our life is yours. And whatever you have for me, I will obey and I will follow. So the first thing that God is doing is, man, he is warning us about the cost of discipleship. The second thing that he's doing is requiring us to forsake all allegiance to this world so we are free to follow when he calls. So he first warns us about the cost so we stay committed to him. He secondly requires us to forsake all allegiance to this world so we are free to follow him when he calls. World-renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, I love how he summarizes this passage. He's doing it provocatively, but it's so good. He says, wanna be, wanna be a disciple, do you? Well, in that case, you have to learn to hate your family, give up your possessions, and get ready for a nasty death. 
to put it bluntly. (laughs) And though the words are exaggerated, the content is actually not that far off. What Jesus is saying is you have to completely forsake your love for the things of this world. Not forsake the things of this world. You still can live in a house if you follow Jesus. That's good news. You can still drive a car. You can still take your wife to a really nice dinner on your anniversary and celebrate God's faithfulness in your life. You still sign your kids up for rec sports. You could still do a lot, but you have to forsake the love of those things, the deep commitment to let them guide and dictate what you do in your life. And so this is Jesus's make it or break it list. You know, when I was single, this is like a bit of a confession, but also a great illustration. I play with my friends, make it or break it. And you essentially list one negative quality about someone. It's like a make it or break it for relationship, right? So ladies, make it or break it. He still thinks the world is flat, okay? It's a break it, okay? Guys, she has 10 cats. Make it or break it, okay? 10 cats, all right? Ultimately, the real make it or break it is if they love the Lord. We all know that, okay? Just saying. But Jesus has his own make it or break it list for discipleship. And he says three things. And these three things are make it or break it if you wanna be a disciple. He says as clearly as anywhere in the Bible, if you do not do these three things, you cannot be my disciple, period. This is not a gray area for God. This is not, you know, super Christians and just mediocre Christians. This is basic discipleship to Jesus. If you don't do these three things, you are not actually my disciple. And this is the picture I want you to have in your head as we talk about these three things. Jesus is picturing someone in bondage. He's picturing someone who's chained to the things of this world. And so they're so involved in the world. They have so found their identity in how they identify sexually. They have so found their identity and the reputation they have or the fame they're trying to achieve. They have so found their identity in their morals that when Jesus walks by and calls them to follow them, even if they want to hear, they can't hear. And so they go to follow Jesus, but they're like, man, I just, I can't give this up. I'm chained to it. I've built my whole identity around it. So I, even if I wanna follow Jesus, I can't break free. And like this thing over here, it's such a big part of me that God's over there doing stuff for the kingdom. God's over there building towards eternity. And and these just people who like, they're trying to follow God, but they can't because they're chained to the things of this world. And I want you to see Jesus, not as a bike thief, but like with bolt cutters, you know? And he's just coming over and he's like, do you wanna be my disciple? And if they say yes, he just cuts the chain and they're free. They're free. They're, they're no longer bound to that thing anymore. And, and for the first time ever, they feel their wrists and the, they're bruised, but they can feel the fresh air blowing on them. And he comes over and he says, do you want to be my disciple? And you say yes. And he cuts the chain and he cuts you loose from the things of this world. And then when he walks by and he calls you, you can go with him in here, most importantly, and in here. And you can start following him and you can start doing amazing things for God because you're no longer chained to the things of this world. And if you don't get that, you're going to miss Jesus' whole heart in this whole thing. It's just going to sound like a legalistic workspace passage. But if you miss the passion of Jesus to free you into what God has called you to do, what God has created you to do, who you actually are in Christ, you'll miss that whole thing. 
And so here are three chains that Jesus is eager to break in the life of everyone before they can follow him. The first one is you need to forsake family loyalty. You need to forsake family loyalty. Look at verse 26. It says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. First chain that God cuts in your life when you want to follow him is your loyalty to your family. Now this word hate in English could be interpreted a lot of ways. That's a really broad word. You know, like, oh my gosh, I hate nachos. That's the type of hate. And oh my gosh, I hate this person because they stole money from me and on and on. There's like a million ways you can use the word hate. So we have to be careful when we see a word, not to just slap what we think it means on the text. And this is the same word described in Genesis 9 when it said, um, and Isaac loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. So it's actually translated love in Genesis 9. But it's this comparative type of what's your priority? What's at the center of your heart? What is most important? And so what Jesus is saying is you need to forsake ultimate loyalty to your family, doing things to honor your family, doing things that your family wants you to do to follow Jesus. One commentator says it so well. He just says, to hate is to neglect social customs pertaining to family loyalties. This is when James and John were in the boat with their father, family business, catching fish. Jesus walks by, says, follow me in the text. I think it's uh, Mark 1, 20. It says, and they left their father in the boat. What do you think that felt like to that father? In a strong group culture, like the ancient Mediterranean world, in an honor-shame society where the two sons of the household threw off the entire structure of inheriting the father's business to go follow a no-name rabbi who didn't even study in an official school. What do you think that felt like to the father? I'll tell you what it felt like. It felt like hate. What do you think it feels like for Morgan and um, Michael's parents for them to remove their grandchildren from them for 10 to 15 years? They have great parents, involved parents, and they will not see their grandchildren grow up because they are following Jesus. What do you think that's gonna feel like to them? It's gonna feel like hate. What, it, what is the world gonna see when their three-year-old son, Nash, he's, he's been having these crazy heat rashes in Papua New Guinea. I mean, just itchy all the time and uncomfortable. His poor little three-year-old stomach can't digest the food culturally, and so he's constantly sick. What does the world look at that situation and say? What are, you, what are you hating your kid for? Why are you putting him through this? But church, hear this. The most loving thing you can do for your family is show them how worthy Christ is. The most loving thing you can do for your family is say, kids, Jesus is worth everything. Everything, everything. He can have it all. He's worth it. He's more glorious. He's more beautiful. He's more satisfying than anything in this world. And I have no doubt that Michael and Morgan LeBlanc are doing the most loving thing possible for their three-year-old son. They are putting Christ up. They're exalting him. And Michael's gonna be able to sit down with him when he's eight. And Nash goes, Dad, why are we in this village? I miss Grandma. I miss Grandpa. I miss my friends. I miss In-N-Out Burger, obviously. Why are we here? 
And Michael is gonna be able to talk to his son about the glory of God. Michael's gonna be able to talk to his son about eternity spent in fellowship with God. It's gonna be so easy. Some of us, we're gonna to have to stumble for words and find illustrations. The LeBlancs aren't gonna to need to find an illustration. Their life is the illustration that God is worthy. And that's beautiful. And so Jesus is redefining how we use the words love and how we use the words hate. And it's not just in the big things. Like that's a huge grand gesture and God is patient and kind. And they didn't just like, oh, we're tribal missionaries. <laughs> as they said, it was small things that in God's kindness, he guided them along the way as they gave little yeses. Stacy and I recently just told our three-year-old daughter if she read through her whole kid's Bible, we'd throw her an ice cream party. And so we're just trying to build culture in our family where it's just not about our family. It's about God's word and it's about serving him. We're doing that with foster care too. We're foster parents in part because I'm discipling my daughter. I want my daughter to know that our household isn't just for us. Our household is to take in the broken. Our household is to take in the needy. And I want her to have that lived example as a father that I'm doing that. And so we, Nora reads her, her Bible. She, the onus was on her, it was so cute. So she'd have to bring me her Bible and be like, dad, let's read a chapter, you know? And so she did that enough to get through 52 stories and she made her guest list. Three families from church, one family from school. And, um, the girl from school that she brought, her family's unchurched. Um, they're not Christians. And they were kind of around church community. And the whole time they were like blown away. Nora's little friend's mom was like, how did you find all these friends, you know, to play with? And Stacy and I are like, this is like an eighth of Nora's friends from church, you know? This was like a limited guest list. And she's just blown away at the community and the love that we have. We're sharing our family with these other families. And the next day, she sends this text. Good morning. Thank you so much again for inviting us yesterday. We're all in agreement that we had more fun with you guys than we've had in a long time. We'd love to get to know you better. Is there any chance you'd like Nora to come over and play? I work from home so I could work outside and watch them. We'd really appreciate it. And so it's not just in the big grand gestures. God will slowly move you there. And I believe that you will face a decision moment in your life at some point, And God will call you to do something. And if you didn't do the prep work of putting to death your desires, you are going to miss your opportunity to serve with the risen Christ. And so it's in all of our family and all of our life, having that single-minded devotion to Christ. The second requirement is to carry your cross like Jesus. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now this barrier cross is misused all the time. People kind of say it in self-pitying pride, you know, that they have like, uh, some sort of limitation or burden they have to carry, like a thankless job or a broken relationship. You say, that's oh, my cross to bear. And though there may be difficulty there, and I'm not trying to poke fun at the pain there at all, that has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying here. To carry a cross in the first century was to prepare for execution for following Jesus, period. That's all it meant. The cross in the first century was a mechanism of torture and death by the Romans. And when Jesus turned to his followers and said, carry your cross, they knew he was talking about the space because from when they'd be condemned by the Romans for living a life for Jesus and where they'd be nailed to that cross and die, that space between their condemnation 
and their execution was called carrying their cross. And so part of following Jesus is preparing, Lord, even if you have me lose my life, I will lose my life for your namesake. It doesn't say you will die. It doesn't say to be a disciple, you have to die as a martyr. It just says in order to be a disciple, you have to prepare even to lose your own life. Later on, the church and in the New Testament did work this initial starting place into ways that we put to death our desires. So carrying our cross additionally in Paul's writings and in church history came to meant you put to death the desire you want for sin. I'm walking with a young man right now who is just kind of fed up with the control pornography has over his life. And he has decided that he is going to fast weekly. He is going to deny himself. He's gonna put to death this impulse to trust that God is gonna deliver him from this habit. This is a young man who's saying yes to this little death every week of not eating so that he can form his desires into the type of person who says yes to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I talked to a high school student two weeks ago who hasn't hung out with any friends in the last several weeks because his friend group was pulling him away from where he wanted to be. And he actually stood up to his friend group and his whole friend group rejected him. Cost of following Jesus. He's He's now dealing with loneliness and trying to find God in that loneliness because he was willing to carry his cross and say no to anything that would pull him away from following Jesus. And lastly, Jesus' make it or break it list ends in kind of a summary fashion to talk about everything he's been addressing when he says this in verse 33. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This word renounce is a very complex one and it can mean two things. It can mean to devote something to God or it can mean to forsake it and leave it behind. So in Mark 6, when Jesus leaves to go pray on a mountain, it's that same word. He renounced the people to go be with God. He devoted his time to be used for the Father. Or in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus calls a man to follow him, and the man says, I'll follow you, but let me go say farewell to my family. Say, same word. Let me go tie things up. Let me take care of my estate. Let me divvy up my inheritance. He wasn't just going home to say bye. He wanted to put his whole affairs in order. It's that same word. And Jesus says, no, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy to be my disciple. Very, very practically, church, that means with your life and with your stuff, you only have two options if you're gonna follow Jesus. That's it. You can devote it to God or you can get rid of it. That's it. Unless you renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Your house, church, devote it to God. Devote it to God. Invite people in. Practice dining room table Christianity like we talked about. Teach your kids how to read the Bible and how to live a life of faith. Your money, your the money in your bank account, don't just store it up for a rainy day. Be wise, but devote it to God. Give it away generously because God has been generous to you. You only have two options if you wanna follow Jesus. Everything you own is devoted to God or you forsake it and you leave it behind. And that is Jesus's summarizing principle for the life of discipleship, that you say no to self and you say no to the things of this world and you say yes to God.
And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus invites us to his great banquet so we can enjoy him forever. Why does he tell us about the cost of discipleship so that we finish? Why does he require us to renounce the things of the world, to have these chains cut so we can follow him? It's because he wants you. He wants to know you. He wants to bless you. He wants to serve with you. He wants to heal you. He wants to pour out his compassion on you. He wants to fix things in your heart that are off. He wants to break down your walls of pride and bitterness. He wants to restore broken relationships. And ultimately, he wants to spend eternity with you. This passage is immediately after the parable of the great banquet. And even in the words they're connected, it says now, which is a word that the authors use to connect two things. And so in the parable of the great banquet that we learned about last week, God symbolized as a host prepared this amazing meal. I mean, just the most amazing, beautiful spread of food you can ever imagine. And the food is ready. And he tells the servants, go invite people. This goodness, this grace, this nourishment was meant to be consumed. And so the servants go out and they start inviting people. They invite the usual suspects and one by one, they make excuses. The first excuse is I'm managing my property. I can't come. I'm busy with my property. The second excuse is I'm managing my wealth. I can't come. And the third excuse is I have a family commitment. I have loyalty to a family member and I can't come. Those are the three excuses that are perfectly paralleled in Jesus's, you cannot be my disciple commands. What Jesus is doing is slowing down and he's zooming into the heart of people who reject him. And he's saying, this is why people reject me because they are, in, they are in bondage to the things of this world. And though they want to enter God's grace, they cannot because they have built their life around the things of this world. And so Jesus is inviting them to come and to feast and to be healed and to be nourished and to enjoy his presence. And that's why he's teaching about the cost of discipleship. It's God's kindness to say, hey, this thing's bad for you. Get rid of it. Your allegiance to this world will lead to your destruction. It's God's love and his kindness and it's his compassion that leads us, like the mom who uses the full name, <laughs> like the coach who shakes the player and says, snap out of it, get back in the game. We got a game to play. It's God's kindness that shakes us and uses our full name so that we wake up to the bondage that we're in in this world so that we can commit to knowing and experiencing the radical love and grace of God. Church, I want you to picture that moment that you enter into eternity and you picture this actual banquet and you look around and you see the people that you reached because you said yes to God. You see the couple like Matt and Adri who came here with a, just a totally broken marriage and that they were so far from God, but because they were ministered to by people in this community, they have this beautiful marriage. And now Matt is leading the prayer team. He's the one praying for other people and he's the one who received the prayer. You know how great it's gonna be for those who are a part of that story to enter into God's great banquet and just the joy of being a part of healing. And I cannot explain to you guys the joy of being a foster dad, the joy of holding these kids, 
who just need someone to love them and to care for them and to hold them, to hold the family that the kids came from and to love the mom and to love the grandparents, to love the whole family, to be a part of seeing a child restored. Church, there is no greater joy than to be used by God to be doing God's work, to be participating in kingdom work and see healing happen in people's lives, to see broken lives restored, to see people transformed, and you get to be a piece of that. God's using you in all of your mess and all your brokenness and all of your questioning and all of your lack of consistency in your Bible reading plan and all of your lack of prayer and all the habits you're still trying to break, the whole package of your life. God still calls you and he uses you to heal people and to bring people to Jesus. Don't you wanna be a part of that? How sad it's gonna be for those of us who get to the banquet and there's no one there we helped get there. How sad that's gonna be to to enter the banquet, to just kind of barely get by and actually have no one to rejoice in their story, to sit for all of eternity and to unpack what God did in their life. And God is saying, come feast on my kindness, feast on my compassion and be used by me. Let me prepare you to do great things. We are so ready to do great things for the professions of this world, for the accolades of this world. People sacrifice everything to achieve greatness in this world. How much more should we be a people ready to sacrifice everything to achieve greatness in eternity so that God's name is lifted up and God's name is exalted and people come to saving faith in Christ? Would you guys pray with me? Lord, I ask that you would soften our hearts. Lord, it's so easy in my heart to hear a passage like this and I I even start to justify, well, Lord, I am laying down my life here and I am sacrificing here and Lord, I so quickly become defensive when I hear a text like this. I so quickly wanna tell you, what a joke, tell you about how I am sacrificing, tell you about how I am doing enough instead of just receiving the invitation to the banquet that you have offered me to feast and to know Christ and to enjoy the work that he's done on my behalf. Lord, I pray for us as a community, God. I pray that we would surrender all. I pray, Lord, that we would be known as a church that's serious about making disciples, that's serious about calling people to repent, that's serious about living for for the moment. God, you're so kind and gracious and you will help us along the way. All you're looking for is for us to say yes to you. That's it. You're looking for a contrite spirit and a willing heart to say yes. And God, you will teach us. You will mold us. You will call us. You will send us. You will change lives through us. It's all you, God. We just need to be willing. And so God, I pray if there's any sin issue in people's life that's holding them back from following you, in the name of Jesus, I pray today that would no longer hold them back. I pray that those patterns would be broken. And even if they're not, Lord, that we would trust you in our own brokenness to serve and to invite people into this great banquet so they can know and be loved by you. Holy Spirit, help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.